This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University is keeping you informed about COVID-19 and the road to recovery right here at home, across the state, and around the world. More at today.tamu.edu slash COVID-19. And Texas Bankers Association. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Texas community banks have led the way in providing PPE loans to help small businesses survive. More at texasbankers.com. Hello, and welcome to the May 27th edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by Justice and Politics reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. Managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. So the title of last week's Tribcast pointed out that there were questions that remained about voting in a pandemic. We got some answers yesterday when the Texas Secretary of State issued, quote, minimum recommended health protocols for upcoming elections. Two that stood out to me were suggestions that voters bring their own hand sanitizer to the polls and that voters may, quote, want to consider voting curbside if they have symptoms of COVID-19. What are your thoughts? What are your reactions? I myself have not been able to find hand sanitizer since this whole thing started, so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing there. I assume if they can find them, they're going to have giant tanks of hand sanitizer at every polling place, you know, get a squirt of Purell and then go in and vote. Um, but, you know, it's weird. I mean, if, they're, if they think it's safe, then you don't need this stuff. And if they don't think it's safe and you do need this stuff, then it raises the same questions that going out and not social distancing does. Does that make sense? I mean, if, if you still need all of this stuff and if you probably should use a mask and if you probably should... Purell or whatever on your way in and on your way out, um, they're essentially saying, you know, look, it's it's mildly dangerous, but go ahead and vote. Yeah, I think the keyword, and Alexa mentioned this, is minimum standards, right? These are kind of the the bare minimum the state is recommending that polling locations do, and, and none of these are really new ideas or things that election administrators haven't already thought about. Obviously, these are the things we see in place in other places as well. Um, the other thing we just thought was interesting is that the folks who are deciding what our elections will look like in July and then later this year, you know, the Texas Supreme Court and then a panel on the Fifth Circuit are so far not meeting in person themselves. So that maybe tells you a little bit something about how safe they think it is to, you know, be in public spaces. Yeah, it's well, funny because these advisories or this advisory, it seemed to really only cement in my head what the dangers were of this. You know, I mean, um, we already talked, Alexa, about the sanitizer and all the different things. But the thing, as you know, because we talked about this afterward, the thing that just like really like hit home in my in mind was this list of symptoms, right, of you know, they, they, for voters, they advise you to kind of look on these symptoms. And if you have shortness of breath, a fever, you know, all the kind of COVID-19 symptoms, you know, you need to consider uh, voting curbside instead of actually going into the polls, which just to me just kind of kind of knocked me out. I mean, so what, I mean, you're going to have 
poll workers going out to people's cars who likely have COVID-19 and taking their ballots? Or or what about people who don't car- have cars? If you have those symptoms, are you supposed to take the bus to the polls and infect the people on the bus, but not in the polling station? I mean, it just really kind of struck me as, you know, like hitting home, like what risks there are of the disease spreading when, when you are having these people gather in person to vote. They don't sound a, a ton more organized than a lot of restaurants. It's just sort of like an ad hoc version of voting. You know, well, if you if you can't come in, we'll come out to the curb. And if you, you want to come out to the curb and, you know, text us with your parking space number, we'll bring you a ballot out. You know, it just it just it seems like going to, you know, El Dorado Cafe in Austin, Texas. You know, you pull up in a parking space, tell them you're in number 37 in a brown Honda and they bring you some enchiladas. Yeah, and I also want... Go ahead, Alexa. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, like, there is... I mean, obviously, one, these are all minimum health standards, right, as Emma pointed out, but they're also not binding, right? There's nothing, as far as I can tell, that the Secretary of State can do if a polling location in Grimes County or in Bastrop County doesn't have hand sanitizer there. There's nothing they can do if people aren't respecting social distancing and keeping six feet apart. I don't know that there's anything they can do if a local election official doesn't space voting machines out six feet and instead does five feet because that's the only way they can fit four machines in a polling location. And so I don't know that this has left a lot of both either clarity or reassurance about how this is supposed to work safely, right? Like for if there was an example about if you have any symptoms, then maybe you should consider voting curbside if you're eligible. But if you're, you know, the eligibility for that says you should do it if going into a polling location has the likelihood of injuring your own health. But if you have any of these symptoms, is it not the possibility of injuring the health of other voters? And and so that's what I felt was missing in a lot of this, where it was these sort of like checklist for individual actions, but less so of an overall guide for how to protect everyone's safety beyond individual personal actions. Did they include anything in their list uh, that local voting centers should not do? Um, was, I it, was, it, was it, was it, was anything, you know, you know, telling them you may want to do this, but don't, you may want to do that, but don't. I mean, it said that you may not, you should not have someone who tested positive for the coronavirus working on election day, you know, things that are, I think things that locals were already thinking about doing, but maybe having it in writing helps. But I mean, I think like the idea of, you know, I found it interesting that nowhere in this guidance did the state explicitly encourage voters who actually have COVID-19 to vote by mail? There's this checklist item that said, if you get it after the deadline to submit an application to vote by mail, contact your county official about submitting an application for an emergency ballot. But they never said, if you have COVID, you are encouraged to vote by mail. And even the encouragement that's in there for voters who are 65 or older to vote by mail is somewhat muted. It's worded as those officials, those individuals may consider. Yeah, or what if you what if you know someone or who have con- come into contact with someone you know in the days before who you know where do you fall on that spectrum too? I mean, the correct me if I'm wrong, Alexa. The deadline to apply for an absentee ballot is is like is is what uh, 
a little less than two weeks before an election. I mean, there's a lot that can happen between that period of time, too, and a lot of kind of fuzzy areas where there's not a lot of clarity on kind of what you should do, you know, if you have it, if you've been exposed to it, all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the the takeaways, right? Like, you know, as the state has been fighting this expansion of voting by mail, it was facing questions about what guidance it had given to local officials and voters about how voting in person was supposed to work or how elections were supposed to work. But I'm not sure that this offers much more clarity to a voter, right? If, if I'm a voter considering what's safe for me when it comes to voting during the pandemic, I'm not sure this helps. Like, if I have asthma, does that qualify me to vote by mail based on a disability, right? Like, that's not just lack of immunity, but an underlying condition. Or what if I smoked for 20 years and have lung disease? What about then? You know, how is that different? How do I kind of parse through that versus having a cough on election day? I just, I don't know that voters who are not thinking about this every day, who maybe don't vote in every election, are supposed to kind of parse through all of this to ensure that everyone stays safe on election day. Yeah, and not to mention the flurry of lawsuits that are happening on this. You know, it seems like it almost goes back and forth every single day. It's hard for the reporters who are covering it to keep track of the various decisions at the federal and state level and what they indicate at any certain time. So a voter may have seen one of those headlines and think that whatever was the case, you know, on May 25th is still the case now. So it is a difficult situation, I think. So the fight against voting by mail has largely been led by the Attorney General, Ken Paxton. Last week, we heard from the Lieutenant Governor on this. Matthew, you watched this interview, and because I was off that day, we got a rare Matthew Watkins byline on the website. <laughs> Tell us what Dan Patrick said about expanding mail and voting. A byline, therefore I exist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> My family was very excited. They got confirmation that I still work at the Texas Tribune. Um, the uh, Yeah, so basically, you know, Dan Patrick um, really seemed to be dismissing the idea that people should be afraid to vote for uh, or to vote in person in the upcoming election or all, particularly in November. I'll, I'll read you kind of part of the, the quote that he gave. He said, there's no reason, capital N, capital O, no reason that anyone under 65 should be able to say, I'm afraid to vote. Have they been to a grocery store? Have they been to Walmart? Have they been to Lowe's? Have they been to Home Depot? Have they been anywhere? Have they been afraid to go out of their house? This is a scam by the Democrats to steal the election. He later went on to say, you know, that it's laughable that you want to have a disability claim if you're under 65. Um that you have more of a chance of being in a serious auto accident on the way to the polls than you do from dying from coronavirus after getting it while voting. Um, you know, just kind of really dismissive of the fear that people have, um, you know, around this idea, you know, basically saying like people are out there already. They should, they should not be afraid to be out there to vote. Well, this is clearly the national Republican messaging. This is what's coming out of the White House. It's coming out of, you know, Republican state houses and, you know, people like, like Dan Patrick. But, you know, it starts at the top. I mean, Trump's been tweeting for some days now. I've lost track of time on it. But, you know, for some days now that the Democrats are promoting vote by mail to steal elections. I think the numbers, correct me here, Alexa, I think the numbers are 34 states allow citizens to vote by mail for any reason. And 
Texas is one of seven states that's um, really restrictive about it. Um, so, you know, most of the country already votes this way or has the opportunity to vote this way. It's been interesting for me to hear comments like that. I, you know, some of my reporting during the pandemic has been about people, many of them young, who do have serious health conditions or, or other pre-existing conditions that put them at, at risk for a really severe case of COVID-19. Many of them have not been to Lowe's. They have not been to Home Depot. Um, I spoke to a woman in March, and I'll never forget talking to her about how worried she was to to take in her mail because she didn't know who might have touched it and she would leave it and sanitize it for hours so that she wouldn't put her health and her husband's health at risk and they were in their 40s. So um, to, to pair out a point made by one of the justices on the Texas Supreme Court, Deborah Learman, who actually herself has tested positive for the coronavirus, um, going to the grocery store is different from voting. You know, you there are, there are options. You can get curbside delivery for your groceries. I guess maybe there will be some curbside voting options, but um, I think equating those things is, is a little bit uh, fraught. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. the point you just made, Emma, is key, that Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, all those places have, in the wake of this coronavirus, either created new or expanded ways to allow people to use their services without actually going in and interacting with people, without having to wait in line. All those stores have recognized the need to give people another option if they feel unsafe to, to do these things. So I'm not sure how that really holds up, that argument really holds up. I mean, the other thing about this is that, you know, you talk to public health experts and the, um, you know, it's not just about, are you going to die or are you not going to die? You know, first of all, like the people who are young can get very sick from this, but it's also a, you know, broader social responsibility. They don't want young people going out transmitting the disease and then giving it to their parents or their grandparents or, you know, uh, other people over 65 that they come into contact with. You know, if if things are happening that's causing the disease to spread more among people in that safer cohort, that is going to produce more danger for the people, the over 65 cohort as well. It's not just a direct thing going on here. You know, the other thing Dan Patrick said in that interview was he really kind of played up the threat of fraud, which is, you know, the reason why um, uh, Republicans are, are saying they're against this. They, you know, Dan Patrick's quote, there will be Democratic activists going out there to find people and say, hey, by the way, you got your ballot. I'll pay you 10 bucks. Can I handle it for you? You know, he said this will destroy America if we allow it to happen. You know, the, the what he, you know, was really trying to argue, I think, in this thing is this idea that that we are setting up, uh, you know, giving people the opportunity to commit fraud and Dan Patrick's words, you know, particularly Democrats to commit fraud, uh, you know, whether that's the case or not, I think, you know, Alexa, you could probably talk to that better than I could. You know, they've got, we've got it in 34 states and it hasn't blown up the country yet. And, you know, I want to point out that one of the differences between grocery stores and Lowe's and Home Depot and Walmart is that they want to keep the customers that they have and they would like to increase the number of customers that they get. And that seems to be a different position than the Republican officials who are saying, don't expand voting, don't make, don't, you know, open the doors for this stuff. They would like to, you know, I mean, it looks like they would like to keep the voting population exactly where it is because that's the population that put them in office. Any change is a potential threat to them. Yeah, I mean, I think this this comes back to two things. One is 
this isn't the first time this sort of specter of voter fraud has been raised in any of these conversations about voting, right? You saw it during voter ID, even though they were trying to combat in-person voting, even though at that point what folks were saying needed to be beefed up was actually voting by mail. In 2017, the legislature did that. They passed additional both restrictions and safeguards on the voting by mail system. And so I think there's a question about, okay, well, we've been okay with this for people who are 65 or older, for people who are going to be out of the county during the election period. Is that different if you have more people being able to actually vote by mail? And, And I don't know that there's, I mean, there's no indication or proof so far that one thing will lead to the other. I think the the other thing to consider is the effect this has in the long run. If you are, you know, raising these concerns that voter fraud is going to be rampant if we increase voting by mail, and then voting by mail increases anyway because people who are normally eligible but don't use it still use it, how do you then come back after an election if you win and say, you know, I just think it opens the door to delegitimizing the results of an election when the party whose voters in some ways most use voting by mail are the Republicans. Like if you think of 65 and older crowd, obviously not all of those people are Republicans, but a large chunk of them are based on the numbers we've seen so far. All right. Well, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to. Texas Farm Bureau. Get resources and information related to the coronavirus pandemic on Texas Farm Bureau's COVID-19 resource page. More at txfb.us. And Texas Conference for Women. Be brave, not perfect. Tune in for practical advice and inspiration to help you navigate away from the pull of perfectionism and toward a life that is bolder, braver, and ultimately happier. Listen now at txconferenceforwomen.com org/category/podcasts. The governor yesterday issued a proclamation announcing more services that could resume. We're talking about food courts and water parks. Uh, another reopening from Abbott after he faced public pressure and sort of more threats of defiance. It was very much so a what would Shelley Luther do moment, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I honestly the the list of things reopening to me, wasn't all that excited. I mean, I guess you can go to Schlitterbahn now, which uh, for some people is, is fun. Um, I, I love is go, go, I go get that Cinnabon at the mall. Not for your children, apparently. <laughs> it's the place of my childhood. <laughs> love that place. But, um, you know, what really stood out to me was just, yeah, like you said, it was it felt like another Shelley Luther moment. You know, we had uh, prior to this past weekend, the Memorial Day weekend, a water park in Katy basically saying, we're going to open, we're going to defy the governor's orders and, and open safely. Um, that reportedly did not happen. And when Abbott was asked about it late last week, he said, you know, we're talking to the business owners, which is kind of exactly what he said when people were asking him about Shelley Luther. And then, you know, uh, you come back on Tuesday, the day after the Memorial Day weekend, and now uh, water parks are opening, you know, and it does make you kind of wonder, like, what kind of incentives are you setting for these businesses that you've still kind of told to remain closed, where, you know, you've seen kind of two different cases now where businesses, business owners have kind of stared down Abbott and Abbott has kind of blinked and, and, and changed kind of the direction he was going and, and gone with the wave of reopening, you know, the the water park question you know it's people are outside can you 
can you maintain social distancing? You know, that is, that is a question you can ask, but the timing again, looks, uh, looks interesting in how this all went down. Yeah. I mean, I think the question remains like, does any of this have any teeth, particularly after Abbott in some ways undermined his own orders following the Shelley Luther debacle? But even now, if you, you know, if you get reports about a, you know, business that reopened and is not respecting social distancing or is not limiting the amount of people who can be inside to whatever capacity we're at, who is responsible for enforcing that? Are these things just you know, restrictions and proclamations in name only at this point. You know, effectively, I mean, you know, if they, if they, you know, pursue these things the way they have, first they knocked down jail time. Then they said, you know, if they're, they've shown twice now that if they're challenged, they back down. Um, a number of um, Democrats in the Texas congressional delegation sent a letter to, you know, the governor asking for stronger enforcement on some of these things. And the response back to them was, you know, what you guys ought to do is pass uh, blanket immunity for the businesses that open so that they're not responsible for what happens. Everything that they're doing seems to be to knock down barriers between um, public health and, and the economy in favor of the economy. And as far as enforcement, I think it's been spotty. The Dallas Morning News has had some good reporting on this, kind of indicating that border cities have been some of the strictest enforcers of these type of emergency rules, whereas in a lot of places, the local law enforcement um, don't seem to be issuing as many citations or tickets. Um, the other kind of threat that Abbott had, or you know, penalty that he had raised, was the possibility of losing your license. You know, if you're a licensed cosmetologist or, um, you know, licensed with the state to have a bar or something like that, that that could be a penalty if you're not following these rules. And uh, again, there was a Dallas Morning News report, I think, that showed us that no um, hair salons were kind of pursued in that way after the rules were changed in the wake of the Shelley Luther. So just kind of another example of why, as a business owner, why not take your chances if you think that the state is unlikely to come take your license and your local law enforcement are unlikely to issue a ticket. Right. Go on. Go ahead, Matthew. I was going to say, you know, the Abbott has has, you know, pointed to the curves, though. Um, you know, I'm looking at our case tracker right now and the the average seven day rolling average of deaths and new reported cases has started to tick down a little bit. I, mean, I think it's way, way, way too soon to say that this is, you know, a consistent trend and, you know, a situation where we're on the back end of this or anything like that. But, you know, I think one thing that Abbott would say is would argue is that, you know, the uh, so far these reopenings that he's pursued so far this level enforcement has not led to kind of that massive second wave or you know some of the fears that people have had about what might happen when we start to reopen the economy. All right. Well, the last thing I want to talk about before we run out of time, uh, we got the sort of clearest indication of the economic devastation Texas are facing after the state's unemployment rate hit a record of twelve point eight percent. Uh, even that record feels a little precarious to me, don't? No? Like, we know that not everybody who has lost a job has been able to make it through the backlog system for unemployment benefits. There are also questions about whether the economy or parts of the economy can even come back from this downturn, much less a second set of closures that may or may not be on the horizon. 
know, the unemployment numbers are, you know, one, basically this says one of every eight Texas workers is out of work right now. Um, now. Some of those have been able to get unemployment benefits, like you say, some of them have not. But, you know, the question is, was how temporary is that and how fast does it bounce back? And to your point, I mean, a lot of these places, you know, anecdotally, we have, you know, depending on where you are in Texas, you know, that restaurant over there that I always used to go to is never coming back. And, and that movie theater may never reopen. You've got those kinds of things. And then you've got, you know, the question of some of these were structural jobs. You know, if you're in the oil patch, you know, the coronavirus certainly is not uh, helping at all. But really, you've got another problem in the oil patch. So your job's not coming back, coronavirus or not, at least not immediately. It's going to take a little bit to see how long it takes us to bounce back. You hear all the economists talking about, is it a V-shaped recovery, a fast one, a U-shaped recovery where we spend some time on the bottom? Is it something else altogether? And, and it's one of those things that's very difficult to predict looking forward and you know, much easier to say what happened after you've gone through it. Yeah, I mean, as part of all this, last week, the big three, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House directed state agencies and colleges to reduce their budgets by 5%. If you're thinking about the actual workers and knowing what we know about how lower-wage workers have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, how, how do we think those cuts, and how do we think about those cuts and not consider whether they will leave Texans worse off. I mean, it seems like uh, a pretty difficult balancing game here. Yeah, I think it's yes. too early to say exactly what, you know, what is going to get cut and what is going to get left. And one important thing, I think, to the coronavirus pandemic that we're in is that the big three did say a certain number of emergency agencies that are kind of most directly grappling with this crisis don't have to cut their budgets. I think the State Department of Health Services and the um, Department of Emergency Management were on that list. But um, certainly it's going to be it's going to mean some difficult choices across the state. And I think it also is going to mean a really, really difficult budgeting year for lawmakers when they come back for the 2021 legislative session. You can't make significant budget cuts in the state budget without getting to public education and health and human services. And, you know, um, public education is kind of in the air. I think they actually saved a little bit of money not having school for, you know, the last 90 days. Whether they go forward in that pose or not, you know, how they go through the certainly the first semester of the next school year and probably the second semester is or maybe potentially the second semester as well, it's going to determine what that costs. And if the state isn't spending money, that pushes pressure onto property taxes. And, you know, we're also in the middle of the conversation about what people's properties are worth. That's the first step in determining what their taxes are going to be. If the state makes cuts, then you start rippling that through school districts and cities and counties and everything else. Yeah, and not to turn everything to politics, but I'm also really curious to see how this all plays out in the next few months in the political realm, you know, because as we all know, as we mention almost every week, that we're in a situation where it's within the realm of possibility that Democrats could retake the House. You know, and one of the big arguments that, um, you know, legislators had going into this election pre-coronavirus, pre-recession was like, look at what we did with school finance and, and how we kind of, you know, fixed this big problem. And now all of a sudden, you know, where's the money going to come from to pay for all those changes you did? And, you know, I think a lot of the discussion that will have to be had, you know, particularly in these swing districts is like, what are, what's the best way to handle 
this shortfall going forward? And is it through making cuts? Is it through trying to find other revenue and things like that? Um, and you know, the kind of idea of, um, there being like a real discussion politically over the next few months of like, what is the best way to handle a recession like this? Where in the past, you know, in, you know, 20, 2011, for instance, it was there, that wasn't really that relevant of a conversation. It was more along the lines of like, what do the Republicans want to do in this case? Um, I think that adds a, just one more really interesting dynamic to this fall. Yeah, I think if you're if you're thinking about the next legislative session and if you're a legislature a legislator preparing to try to figure out how to write the next budget, I do wonder if that's different if you're a Democrat or a Republican and if that's gonna be even more different depending on what we see happen in the House, just given the diverging political priorities that intertwined with the budget writing. Yeah, whatever happens, I think we know that budget writing in 21 can't be business as usual, right? The Some of the biggest state sources of revenue are sales tax, which we know is severely down, and oil and gas severance taxes, which we know are, is severely down. So you can't turn, you can't rely on those um, typical sources of wealth in the way that you usually can. So some some difficult questions on the horizon. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Texas A&M University, the Texas Bankers Association, the Texas Farm Bureau, and the Texas Conference for Women. On behalf of Emma, Matthew, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. Use,